Okay, well, good morning, church. Uh, please open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And preschoolers, those going to the preschool class, you are dismissed, and we will see you guys later. I'm thankful this morning to be able to worship alongside my father, as well as my father through marriage, and uh, grateful for uh, the fact that I get to worship in the same room as my boys, um, and uh, grateful that Ben and Betsy are here. Uh, Brittany and I could return the very expensive Father's Day gift we had gotten Dad, uh, but uh, in lieu of that, Ben and Betsy are here, and that's great. Uh, but my boys, my boys, they are, they are starting to look more like me. I mean, maybe you guys agree or disagree, but, uh, but I think that uh, as they're getting older, they're looking more and more like me. I'll, most people say that when they were first born, uh, that they look more like Brittany uh, or Pappy uh, or someone else in the family. But as they get older, they start to look more and more like me. And I do think that they also desire to look more and more like me, which is probably a good and healthy thing. Uh, Joel, you know, I've shared this before. When he's putting on a button-up shirt, he's saying, you know, now I look like daddy when he's got a button-up shirt on on Sunday morning. And I think that's, it's, it's, a, it's a good thing. I think when things are healthy and, and, and right in a family and going well, that that's a good desire for, for boys to uh, grow up, to want to look more and more like their father, not only physically, but also in their character and in their faith. And, and as young men grow into maturity, they can now relate to their fathers on a deeper level as they become more like them, right? They can kind of understand a bit more some of the rules that their fathers had given them when they were young, and, and some of those things start to make more, more sense to them as they get older. And you see, it would, be, it would be somewhat twisted and backwards if young boys wanted their fathers to look more like them. Wouldn't that be sort of backwards? Now, minus the few exceptions where we know Jesus calls us to trust God like a child and have a childlike faith, I, I realize there are some things that we can learn from our young kids and we can, we can follow their example in. But in general, in general, for the sake of illustration, in general, it's not healthy. In order for there to be a relationship between parent and child, father and son, if kids are trying to make their parents more and more like them instead of the other way around. And you see, in a similar, in a similar way and in a sinful way, in order for us to relate to God better, we wrongly want to make him more like us. And much of our worship can become us trying to make him more relatable and similar to us, to bring him down to our level so that we can relate. And that is the problem that the second commandment is addressing. It is that humanity desperately wants to make God into an image of our own liking. It's that we want to make God more like us. But the question that we have to ask this morning is, does God have something better in mind for his people? And so, church, we need this good word from our Father this morning because a lot of the idolatry in the church today is not necessarily us worshiping another God like we talked about last week in the first command. But a lot of idolatry in the church today is instead us trying to worship a version of God that is more like us. A couple of weeks ago, we started into our, our sermon series on the Ten Commandments. And we're calling this sermon series the Ten Good Words from Our Father. And we started by first trying to understand as followers of Jesus what our relationship to the law of God should be. That can be kind of confusing for us. We're not sure even if we should be talking about the Ten Commandments. I mean, we're followers of Jesus. Uh, should we just stick in the New Testament? What's going on? But we saw a couple of weeks ago, we saw that, yes, Jesus came to fulfill the law, but not necessarily to do away with the law. Uh, we saw a couple of weeks ago that Christ is the end of the law for our justification, but the law is still present for our joy. 
we saw that we are no longer on the, under the judgment of the curse of the law, but now instead the Holy Spirit has come inside of us and written the law of God on our hearts so that we would delight in it. And we've been seeing again and again over the past couple of weeks that the law leads us to Jesus and then Jesus frees us to obey and delight in the law. We talked about the three uses of the law. This is just giving you a recap if you haven't been with us. So we talked about the three uses of the law, moral, civil, ceremonial. And while there is wisdom and insight we can draw from the civil and ceremonial laws in the Old Testament, we must understand those in their context as being given to a specific nation in a specific time and place. But underlying all those civil laws is really the moral law of God, which has always been there, and what we find in these 10 good words, which are still very applicable for the life of a believer, not for our justification, but for our joy. For we know that the New Testament sums up the law of God, and it sums it up with love God and love others. But you see, it's in the law of God that we learn what that means, Because we live in a day and age where we've kind of started to redefine what loving God and loving others even means. But God has actually laid out how he wants us to love him. How does God want us to love him? And we see that start to be answered in the first four commands, followed then by six commands that show us how to love our neighbor. And so we will hopefully, as we go through each of these ten good words from our Father, we'll hopefully continue to see that the law of God still has a very big part and role to play in the believer's life. For the law, right, remember we've talked about this, the law does four things. The law reveals to us the heart of our Father, right? In each of these good commands, we see the heart of our Father. The law exposes the sin in our own hearts. The law leads us to Christ. And then finally, freed and empowered by the grace of God through Christ, the law guides us in how to live and how to love wisely and freely as children of God. Because you remember the context of Exodus 20. Before we just jump in here to to, to commandment number two, you remember the context of Exodus 20. The most important point of context is that Exodus 1 through 19 come before Exodus 20. Right? These are, these are not instructions to the people of God on how to get out of Egypt or how God is going to deliver them and save them. No, these are ten good words for a, pre, a free people to stay free and to not go back to living like slaves. And that's why we're preaching through the ten good words to our church this summer is because we do not want you, church, to go back to living like slaves. We want you to live as free people, as children of God, who know his heart, who, who've seen the sin exposed in our hearts, who've turned to Christ to be freed from it, and now can live and love wisely and freely as children of God. Last week, we talked about the first, the first good word from our Father, and we learned that God deserves and desires to be our one and only God. Right? That's the first command. He's, he, is, he should be our one and only God. God. And all those things that we are setting our heart upon or putting our trust in more than him are functioning as our gods. But we were encouraged and challenged hopefully last week to surrender all of our other idols, all of our other false gods, all of our other lesser loves and surrender those to God that he alone would be our God. These false gods enslave us, but the one true God desires to free us Who you worship matters. That's command number one. Who you worship matters. But now as we move into this week, we see that how we worship matters as well. How we worship the one true God matters. The first two good words from our Father in the Ten Commandments are all about idolatry. The first is about who we worship. The second is about how we worship. Will we worship God by making him into an image of our liking? Or does God have something better in mind for us? So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to lay it out in that we'll, we'll, we'll first see what this second good word, this second command means and, and, and what God is saying here. Um, we'll then talk about why he gives us this word and his heart behind it and what's going on in our hearts behind it. And then finally, we'll, we'll get a strong warning 
followed by a glorious promise. So that's where we're going this morning. What is this command? Why did he give it? And what is this strong warning and glorious promise? Let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help in this. Oh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us through your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give light to the truth of your word, that you would show us our Heavenly Father's heart in giving this command to his people. Oh, Lord, would you guard against and keep us from turning this into a list of, of, of check boxes that we can check off to make ourselves right with you? Oh, no, God, may you expose the, the sinfulness of our hearts, the idolatry that's in our hearts, And may we see that our only hope in life and death is to turn our eyes onto you, Lord Jesus, and to trust in the work that you've accomplished for us. But Lord, as we do that this morning, as we hear your word, oh God, would you free us from the sin and the idolatry that enslaves us? Would you lead us to freedom and would you keep us from going back to living like slaves? Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to respond. Stir up in us a greater love for you and for one another. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Okay, so at first this seems pretty simple and straightforward. Don't make an image of God or of anything that is in heaven or on earth or in the water, kind of covering all the different layers and levels and realms and all that. Don't make an image. Don't make an idol. Don't make a sculpture of those things in order to bow down to them and serve them or worship them. Okay. And at this point, we're probably all sitting comfortably like, hey, maybe this is one of the 10 that I've actually kept. (laughs) Well, just wait. Don't get too comfortable. But first, let's address this. Um, This command is not, as some have taken it, this is not God prohibiting all artistry in worship spaces. Okay, that's not the case. And we know that because later in the law, God is going to instruct his people to make images of cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, He's going to instruct them to make images of angelic beings in the tabernacle. And so we see God in the law, God himself commanding artistry as he give instructions on how we are to worship him. And God is not contradicting himself. No, the command here is not to make these things in order to bow down to them or worship them or serve them. God is saying, don't make something with your hands or in your mind and then try to worship me through worshiping it. That's not how he wants us to worship him. And this is why most Protestant churches, you've probably noticed, are very hesitant to use images of things that could tempt people to bow down and worship those things or try to worship God through those things. This command was somewhat rediscovered during the Protestant Reformation and why we believe you shouldn't have statues of saints and relics and icons and things that people could be tempted to worship God through those things because that is not how God desires us to worship him. And Christians have had differing views on images of Jesus, but let's save that for a few minutes later. We will talk about that. But first understand this, that because God is God, because we are his people, he gets to decide how we worship him, and he doesn't want us making a thing or an image that we bow down to and worship. Now, in order to understand God's heart, in order to understand our heart, in order to put this in our context a a bit, let's try to understand why human beings would want to make an image of God to worship. 
Let's try to understand what's going on. And you see, in general, humans make idols, and this has been from ancient times, even up until now in different cultures, and even in our culture, humans make idols because they want God to be completely comprehensible, controllable, and comfortable. This is why human beings make idols. We want God to be completely comprehensible, like we've got him all figured out. We've got them all in our little boxes. We understand. We can explain everything, why he does the way he does it, because we got it all figured out. We want him to be completely controllable, and we want to be completely comfortable with him. And so when people make an idol, what they're doing is they're trying to take something that is unseen, and they're trying to make it a bit more understandable and relatable. It makes this false god into something that they can see and they can feel and they can touch. They can get their minds around it. Helps them comprehend this false god. But idolatry also gives a person a sense of control over the false god. I mean, they, they liked that they could sort of manipulate and control like these, these spiritual beings, these demon false gods that they're worshiping. If they sacrificed their children to an idol, they would get rain. If they had sex with cult prostitutes for this idol, then they would have an abundant harvest. It was was a way for people to try to control these false gods, to manipulate them to their own liking. It turned their faith in these gods into a predictable math equation, which I'm sure none of you could relate to. But they thought, if I do this, this, and this for this god, then this god will have to do this for me. None of you would probably, that's more ancient times, paganism. You probably couldn't relate to that, but that's what people do in idolatry. They want to turn their faith into a math equation, a predictable, controllable, where they know what's going to happen. If I do this, this, and this, if I go serve here, here, and here, if I give this, 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 then God has to do this for me. They want God to be controllable. Idolatry gave the people a sense of control over a God. Idolatry also made worship easy, convenient, and comfortable. Hey, you don't need to commit like your whole life to this religious thing. If you want this to happen in your life, just go to this idol, go to this temple, do this thing, and you're good to go. Idolatry helps people be a bit more comfortable with all this spiritual stuff. It makes it easy and convenient more like a drive-through faith. But church, just because most of you, I would assume, are not at home making statues and idols that you bow down to and worship. And if you are, I feel like I do have to at least say this once, if you are, you do need to stop and repent of that, okay? This, this command is certainly addressing that, if you are doing that at home. But even if you're not doing that, even if you're not forming an idol with your hands, do not be so blind and naive to not realize how much we break this command as well. For we all have that same propensity to want God to be completely comprehensible, controllable, and comfortable. And so what we do is we make God into an image of our own imagination and liking. Well, how do we do this? We do this by, uh, we, some of us do this by dismissing some parts of Scripture because they don't fit our view of what we think God should be like. So we just dismiss certain parts of Scripture because it doesn't really fit our understanding of Him. We can't really get our minds around how God could, could be both loving and wrathful, and so we struggle to fit in some of these things together. And so we're going to highlight some parts of Scripture, but we're going to kind of dismiss other parts, and in doing so, we'll kind of make a God of our own liking and our own imagination. This happens when we struggle to see how two truths can both be true of God. Right? Much, of, much of our faith, there, there is a little bit of a mystery, a little bit of a tension, a little bit of a, we can't completely get our minds around him. But some of us, when we struggle with this, I mean, how can God be fully God? How can Jesus be fully God and fully man? How can God be sovereign and man be responsible for his choices? Well, instead of that tension causing us to be in awe of him, 
Let's just dismiss some parts of Scripture we don't like and stick with the others that make me comfortable. That way we know we've got God completely figured out. We're comfortable with him. We're not in awe of him anymore, but we can, we can explain him. We can dissect him. We can, you know, make sure we can figure him all out. This happens when people like God's mercy, but they don't like his power. Right? We maybe think, well, too much power can corrupt, so we're going to view God as having limited power, limited knowledge, limited foreknowledge, limited sovereignty. Let's just make him more like us. I think we'd all be a bit more comfortable if he was a bit more like us. <laughs> or what about this? I, I think other people, you know, my, my, my neighbors that don't know the Lord, I think they would be a bit more comfortable if we just made God a little bit more like us as if God needed a PR director to help his image and branding. And as if we think we could help him with that, you know. One example of this kind of idolatry is when people become moral, therapeutic deists. Talked about that term before. Moral, therapeutic deism. It was a term first coined back in 2005 when a sociologist did a study on what American teenagers believed. And here's what they found. After doing all the surveys and questions, and uh, here's what they found. Again, this was back in 2005, so uh, those were teenagers back then, roughly probably around my age. So now they're adults, and they have kids of their own, and this is what they believed back then, probably what many of them believe now. And they, co- they compiled their beliefs, and they called it They couldn't really call it Christianity or another religion, but they called it moral therapeutic deism. And what many of these teenagers believed was that there was a God who created and ordered the world and watches over human life. They were most of them were on the a lot of them like that. They were good with that. But that his main purposes are that God wants people to be nice, God wants people to be happy. And God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. And they believe that there are multiple ways to come to God through many different religions, not just through Jesus Christ. Now, moral therapeutic deism is not Christianity as the Bible teaches And what it is, is it is a nice and moral version of idolatry. But at the end of the day, these are people worshiping a God of their own making. Instead of by how he has revealed himself to us in scripture. And you see, when we make an image of, our, of God on our own, in our own minds or with our own hands... At the very least, we do a couple things. I mean, worst case scenario, we're, we're worshiping a false god. But at the very least, when we, when we worship a lesser version of God or a god of our own making, at the very least, we do, we do two things. We diminish his glory, number one, because we've scaled God down so much to our level, and by doing so, we've lost our sense of reverence and being in awe of him. And then secondly we likely introduce an error or a heresy or a false doctrine into our understanding of who he is. At the very least, we lose reverence and we introduce error when we worship a God of our own making, a lesser version of the one true God. For example, anytime someone tries to give an illustration of the Trinity they are in danger of this. Okay, so let me just give you some teaching advice for those of you that get an opportunity to teach God's word or try to explain the Trinity to people that we worship one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Listen, if you think you're gonna teach that by giving an illustration, be warned. Many a youth pastor has gone before you and committed great heresy and error in their attempt to try to illustrate the Trinity. So I don't care if you're going to go kind of the water, ice, vapor, or the egg, or the apple. Whatever you're going to do, listen, at the very least, you're going to diminish God's glory, and you're probably going to introduce 
some dangerous air and heresy to it. Because we cannot fully comprehend or illustrate or image the one true God, the creator of heavens and earth. I mean, think about this, a, a painting of Niagara Falls. It's not, not always, I mean, it's not wrong to, to paint Niagara Falls, but when we look at a painting of Niagara Falls, can we not acknowledge that, at the ver- that, that this painting is never going to do justice to the glory of standing at Niagara Falls? It is going to fall way short of that. At the very least, this is what happens when we try to make God more like us. We diminish his glory. We lose our reverence for him, and we likely are introducing some error or wrong teaching in the equation. In Psalm 50, which we'll have up on the screen, God is declaring some judgment on his people because they've been viewing the sacrificial system, even the the system he gave in his law that he had given them. They started viewing it as a way to buy him off or to manipulate him, like like paganism does with idolatry. They they viewed it as, again, that that, equation, like if I do this and this, God will then give me this. But instead, they, they, they wrongly did those things instead of seeing it as a way to enter into and enjoy a relationship with God, which is what it was initially intended to be. This was a way that you can enjoy a relationship with a holy God and yet still be a sinful human being. This was an invitation into a relationship with the Lord, and they turned it into just a, hey, I'm going to use this to just try to manipulate God and get what I want. And he says in Psalm 50, verse 21, he says, these things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver, that the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. You see, they had missed the the, the heart posture, that this was to be done by faith and that this was to be done with gratitude and thanksgiving and God had given them a way to do this. But, But because they thought that God was like them, they diminished his glory, they brought him down to their level and now they're just trying to manipulate and control him to get what they can out of him for their own means. And this is the rebuke, church, that we need to hear as well. God says, you thought I was one like you, and I'm not. You thought plain church was a way to control me and manipulate me. Church, may we repent of our idolatry the ways we've tried to bring God down to our level to control him and manipulate him. You see, this is why our worship must be centered on the word. We believe that we should have a word-centered worship. So with, with, with each of the commands, there's a negative prohibition, but there's also a positive command implied, right? So don't, don't make an image of God, but, but, here, you know, but, but, but center your worship on the word. It's not as if God hasn't revealed himself. He has, and he's primarily revealed himself through his word, and so may your worship be guided by his word. And now when I say word, I, be, I mean both his inspired word and the incarnate word. And what I mean by that is the inspired word, speaking of our Bibles, the scriptures, as well as the incarnate word, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. And so this is what should guide our worship. This is why we preach God's word. This is why we pray God's word and sing God's word. And we we see God's word in the elements that he's given us in the Lord's Supper and baptism. But these are all being guided by God's word. We also want to make sure our worship is centered on Jesus, that all the scripture is really pointing to Jesus, so our worship should be pointing us to Jesus as well. And when our worship is not centered on the inspired word and the incarnate word, oh, we are in danger of just worshiping God the way we want to worship him and viewing him the way we want to view him. 
But may we be humble enough to see that we need his word to guide us and correct us and to show us who this God is. A God who has made himself known, who we can truly know and be known by. However, we cannot exhaustively comprehend all of his glory. He's given us all that there all that we need to know for life and salvation, but not all that there is to know. And so many times we do leave worship when it's driven by the word, we leave worship in awe of who God is. He's bigger than I thought he was. He's more powerful than I I thought he was when I came in here. His love is, is greater and further reaching as we'll see at the end of this command. But may our worship always be centered and driven by the Word of God. And so speaking of the incarnate Word, speaking of Jesus, let's, let's talk about images of Jesus. There are some Christians, many of which who I respect dearly, I love dearly, they love God's Word, they love Jesus, they, they have differing opinions over whether or not we should have any images of Jesus. And so some people I respect very much, some of my professors in seminary, uh, they actually, they, they have the personal conviction that they need to go through their, uh, their storybook Bibles and cover up every picture of Jesus that's in there. That they should not be around any image of Jesus, whether in a movie like The Passion of the Christ or a TV show or anything, they, they, they believe that they should not see an image of Jesus and that to do that would be to break this, this, this command. Now listen, if that's you and that's your conviction, I'm probably not, I'm not going to even try to talk you out of that, okay? I would say if that's where your conscience is, then, then hold to that. But do not allow a matter of conscience, if it's not being fully informed by God's word, do not put then uh, that judgment on a brother or sister sitting next to you. Because I do not hold the conviction that, that this command is um, forbidding all images of Jesus since he was God made flesh. He was a human being who walked on the earth. However, that being said, even those of us who are okay seeing images of Jesus, we do need to take some wisdom from this and be warned a little bit and to be cautious and where we use images of, of Christ. So for example, I would not encourage you to, uh, it would be breaking this command if you, would to be, if you paused the passion of the Christ and you bowed down and worshiped to the actor portraying Jesus. That would obviously be wrong. It's why we don't put up images or portraits of Jesus in a worship space. We don't, we don't want that to be a temptation or of anyone to think that they're gonna worship God through this image. But Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He did walk on the earth, and he took on human flesh. But, but here's some wisdom and why we maybe shouldn't encourage immature believers or young believers to put images of Jesus in front of them. Because listen to this, just like we've been learning, any image of Jesus, just like any image of God is going to fall short of his glory, image, any image of Jesus will absolutely fall short of the glory that was experienced by those disciples who walked with him. It will. And so you got to go into that knowing that. I mean, it's a little easier if you're looking at like kind of a cartoon version of Jesus in a storybook Bible, but you start seeing him on a screen and things like that. You got to know this is, this is falling short of the actual glory of what it was like to walk with Jesus when he walked on earth. So we have to go into that understanding that. We have to also understand that there is a possibility that error could be introduced, either through what is seen or what is perceived, as someone looks at an image of Jesus or watches an actor portray Jesus on a screen. And so this is why I would really encourage us um, to not put those images in front of us unless we are also well-versed in how God has chosen to reveal himself to us through his word. Someone who is well-versed with how God has revealed himself to us through his word can start to filter out and discern some of these things that they're seeing come across in images of Jesus. 
And if anyone wants to meet and talk more about that, let's, let's do that. But let's be careful not to make God more like us. God does not want us to make an image of him to worship. But why? Could he have something better in mind? And he, and he starts to answer the why if we keep reading in the verse, doesn't he? So look, look back at Exodus 20, verse 5. He says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Well, let's stop there. That can sound really strange or even wrong at first to hear God call himself a jealous God. Can that be right? And the reason that we think that way is because when we experience jealousy, it typically is a sinful type of jealousy. Uh, when, a, when a person is jealous, their, their heart is typically full of envy, desiring something that does not belong to them. And that is not what God is talking about when he calls himself a jealous God. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, he gives a, a helpful description of God's jealousy He writes, God's jealousy is not a compound of frustration, envy, and spite, as human jealousy so often is, but appears instead as a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely precious. And we can leave that up on the screen for a few minutes here. It is a praiseworthy zeal to preserve something supremely Precious. You see, God is ultimately jealous for his own glory and for his creation that he created to glorify him. And you say, well, that seems like God is really full of himself. And it could seem that way if we try to pull him down and make him like us. Because when we are zealous for our own praise, it is selfish and prideful and arrogant, but that's because we are not the creator. We are not the one worthy of praise from the creation. But God is, and God is the supreme treasure above all things. And therefore, if God is to be true and consistent in his character, then he must value that which is most valuable in the universe, namely himself. And that does not make him selfish or stuck up. That makes him God. If God valued the glory of some other entity more than himself, then that would be the God that we should go worship. But you see, God is not petty or sinfully envious or anything like that. He is jealous and deserving of our glory and our love, and he is right and pure and without sin in that jealousy because he alone is worthy of our worship. And so when we go after other gods like we were instructed not to in the first command, and when we construct images in our mind or with our hands that diminish his glory, he is rightfully jealous with a holy jealousy. But don't think like middle school girl jealousy. And I apologize to the middle school girls, but you were just the first group that came to mind, okay? But that's not, that's not because of you that are in here, just other middle school girls. <clears throat> Don't think middle school girl jealousy, like this is just being a girl being jealous of another girl getting all the attention and not her. No, this is more like a loving and faithful husband who is jealous for the loyal love of his wife. And husbands, you know that you know that burning that you experience inside yourself. There is a right and pure burning jealousy you have if you see your wife going after the affection of another man or you just even think about that. I mean, you can feel that burning. And that is how God illustrates very commonly through his word how he describes his loyal love and jealousy because God describes his people's idolatry as being like spiritual adultery. He deserves our worship and our love, and he is rightfully jealous for it when we go after other gods. He is rightfully jealous for it when we worship versions of God that we've made more like us.
Now, here's something else about God's jealousy that makes it so holy, so set apart, so other than, so just out of this world, different from what we experience in jealousy. God is jealous for our worship and love because he also knows, get this, he also knows that the best thing for us is to worship him and him alone. God knows how creation works best. He does want the best thing for us, and the best thing for us is him. And so his holy jealousy is, yes, for his glory, but it is also for our good. And therefore, our idolatry, it not only steals glory from God, but it also does harm to us. You see, I want you to see this through this series. When we break the commands of God, we are also breaking something inside of us. In light of this command, do you remember who you are? Think, Think about that quietly to yourself. In light of this command, do you remember who you are? I mean, God only gives 10 good words. This is number two. Why is he so focused on this? Why is God so focused on his people not making images of him? Is this this really that big of a deal? Do you remember who God created you to be? Image bearers of God. What does that mean? To be an image bearer of God, it means to reflect his nature and character to his world. And it means to be his representative rulers here on earth. And God intends for us as image bearers to do this good work he created us for and for people to see that good work and to glorify him because of it. Human beings were created to be image bearers of God. But sin entered into the world and turned us in on ourselves. We stopped reflecting glory to God. We started absorbing the glory that only he deserved. And in our sin, our imaging of God was broken and distorted. But then what have we been singing about all morning? Then thanks be to God when the fullness of time came, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law. Jesus Christ, who Paul said in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus came and obeyed the second command for us perfectly. He was the perfect image bearer that we in our sin failed to be. And he went and died on the cross to pay the penalty for all the times we have failed to give him glory or gone after other gods. Oh, church, you see, Jesus Christ came not just to make a way for you to get into heaven. He came to restore the image of God in his image bearers. He came to restore the image of God in image bearers who had tried to make God more like him, more like them. And so this is how we worship in the sec- according, to the, to, according to God's word in the second command. This is how we worship. We worship God not by making an image of him, We worship God by him making his image in us. Don't make God into your image. That's not true worship. True worship is God making you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And therefore, if you want more images of God in the world... It's a good desire. I mean, I think we have to understand it's a good desire, but where it went wrong in our sin, it's a good desire to want more images of God. But if you want more images of God, have more babies. I know I don't need to tell you that, but have more babies. Make more disciples. Submit yourself to God as he has revealed himself, not how you want him to be. And you watch more and more image bearers of God flourish and spring up in the world. Isn't that one of the beautiful things about gathering together? So that we can start to, we can look at one another who we know, many of which we know. We're glad to have visitors and family here this morning. But many, many of those we, people in here we know, we can look around 
And as we look around, can't we catch a glimpse of Christ? Isn't this one of the reasons why we shouldn't neglect to be with one another? It's because as we each submit ourselves to the one true God, he slowly but surely is restoring his image in us. Doesn't this stir up your faith and your love in one another? Can't we praise God even more for the work that we see him doing in each other's lives? You see, this is what makes idolatry so serious. It affects all of us. It does. I'm all about preaching that your faith and the gospel, that, 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 that it's a personal faith. We need to make it personal. But it is not private. Idolatry and sin affects all of us. If you are worshiping another God or a lesser version of the one true God, it affects everyone around you and even those who come after you. And that's what we see in the last part of this good word. We see a glorious promise that swallows up a serious warning. Look back at Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Glorious promise that swallows up a serious warning. So first, look at this warning. Here we see that sin and idolatry have generational consequences. The greed of one generation will be felt by the next one after that. The consequences of complacency of the church in one generation will be felt and experienced in the generations that follow. The lack of Christ-centered discipleship and education in one generation will be felt by your grandkids. Fathers, your idolatry or the idolatry you are allowing in your home, it could have consequences for your grandkids and great-grandkids. Now, to be clear, verse 5 says, God will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. He's impl- God is implying, this is implied here, that both the fathers and the children hate God. Which is oftentimes what happens. Children learn to love what their fathers love and hate what their fathers hate. There's exceptions to that, I realize, and many of us are exceptions to that. But many times kids learn to treasure what fathers treasure and value what they value and and that's a beautiful truth when, when parents are loving the Lord and being conformed into his image. Oh, but it is a fearful and serious warning when parents are harboring idolatry in their hearts. I mean, some of the things that the pastors are shepherding you all through right now, I mean, some of this is, is coming from parents who were not submitting themselves to being made into the image of Christ. And now as a result of that, you're working through things with a distorted view of Christ and the gospel. All because the one who led you to Christ has not been becoming more and more like him. And I'm still young enough that I hope to be your kid's pastor in the future when they're adults. And so let's get on top of this idolatry right now and just save us all a lot of work in the future. Those things that you are harboring in your own heart, those decisions you are going to make later this week, I love the movement in Christianity where we've made it, again, a personal faith, but we've made it a private faith. Your sin and idolatry affect those around you and the generations that come after you. Like, when did we become just so consumed about whether or not we are saved and we've, we've totally lost the question of, like, what is my idolatry and sin and faith going to affect? How is it going to affect my grandkids and my great-grandkids and those that come after me? This is a serious warning that God gives. But don't miss actually the main point of emphasis in these verses. Yes, sin and idolatry have generational consequences. They they can, and that is a serious warning. But there are consequences. These are consequences that can be redeemed and swallowed up by the steadfast love of the Lord. (laughs) I mean, look at this. This is a glorious promise that just swallows up this serious warning to where it's hard to even keep talking about the warning because this is such a lopsided promise and warning. 
He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, verse 6, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. That is best translated to a thousand generations of those who love me. Do you see the, the lopsidedness of the warning and the promise? Sin will have some generational consequences, but for those who turn to God, those consequences are swallowed up and redeemed by the steadfast love of the Lord to a thousand generations. It's a glorious promise. The steadfast love of the Lord, it is, it is God's loyal love, his unfailing love, his lasting kindness, his never-ending goodness, his enduring commitment to his people. We don't have many English words to describe it, but I'm trying to throw them all in together to, to paint the picture for you. It's God's loyal love, his steadfast love, his goodness and kindness that continues to come after us and shower us with his grace. And God has this in abundance. He does not run out of this. He's not stingy with it. He's sitting on the edge of his seat ready to shower you with this. And those who have seen the glory of Christ, the image of the invisible God, listen, if you have had eyes to see the glory of Christ, God's steadfast love has already been at work in you. God's steadfast love is already softening your heart. God's steadfast love can redeem and transform any sin or idolatry in your life or in the family line. And we diminish God's glory when we try to make him like us. And we do the same with his steadfast love. There is no sin or idolatry in your life or in your family that God's steadfast love cannot come in and swallow up and redeem and restore. And this is how God changes and transforms us. He doesn't guilt us into becoming more like him. No, he pours out his steadfast love. And it is as we enjoy and experience his steadfast love that we start to delight in becoming more like him. And it's as we extend that same love to others that their lives are changed and restored as well. God can, through Christ in you, change, transform, restore his image in you and in, if the Lord should tarry, millions, thousands of people that follow you. Church, think this week with me, and, and I'm, I am winding things down. Think this week. How will my experiencing and enjoying God's steadfast love today be a blessing not only in my life, but to those around me and to those who come after me? Church, remember and meditate on the steadfast love of the Lord. It endures forever. Psalm 136 would be a great psalm for you to pray through and think on. Just the psalmist repeatedly repeats, the steadfast love endures forever. The steadfast love endures forever. The steadfast love endures forever. If you want the, to fuel the fire of the Holy Spirit making you more like Jesus, you've got to continually remind yourself, remember, enjoy, and experience the steadfast love of the Lord.